Y'all didn't see it, but after uh, we had the sound system, it, it finally came back in, uh, but then uh, I had to do something that somebody neglected to do right before we took communion, and I spilled the wafers all over the floor, and, uh, and then Craig came up and said, I've got a really good feeling about today. Uh, and... Uh, so it's just like, let's just all go home and get back in the bed. Yeah, it, just, it just feels like that. Okay, let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, as we get back into the book of Acts, we pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder of your glory. And uh, Lord, this morning as we tackle uh, what can be a confusing and even difficult uh, text, we pray that you uh, would send your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been a little bit since, uh, since we've been in the book of Acts because we've had people come in into town and wanted to take advantage of the fact that Elizabeth Elliot was here. And uh, so from here on out, we're going to be in Acts for a while. Uh, during Lent, uh, we will have a couple folks here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we'll have uh, Mike Hill, the Bishop of Bristol. He'll be with us. And then a guy named Wes Hill. Whoa, how about that? Wes Hill. Uh, who will also um, be with us. And Wes is a, professor, a seminary professor up at Trinity uh, in Ambridge, uh, Pennsylvania. So, but those are the only two, I think, that are going to be in here uh, during Lent. So we're pretty much on Acts. And where we left off is Paul had finally been received uh, by the Christian church in Jerusalem. And no longer did they fear that he was, you know, a double secret undercover guy that was going to do them in uh, just at the last moment, that his conversion was real, and that his testimony was real, and that his faith was real. So they've let him loose, in a sense, and yet uh, here we begin to see a little bit of tension uh, in, um, in the early church, and we're going to see that tension not actually coming from Paul, uh, but from God himself. And so I'm going to pick up Acts chapter 9, beginning with the 36th verse. One thing you need to know is uh, Peter has just healed a man named Aeneas, who was bedridden for eight years, and now uh, he's going to head uh, to Joppa, which is modern-day South Tel Aviv. It's very lovely. It's right on the Mediterranean. It's a great place to be. And um, so that's where we pick it up. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, all the windows stood beside him weeping, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And returning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of the Lord. Now we're actually going to probably get into Acts chapter 10, which uh, is, is pretty uh, deep water, but that's where we need to go. 
But Peter, uh, we all know, this is really Peter's first emergence on the scene. It seems like it's been forever since we've spoken about him. Since he had this preaching ministry there in Jerusalem in the days and in the immediate aftermath from Pentecost. And if you look at Peter's journey of life, it's to say that it's up and down would be an understatement. Peter was known as a zealot, right? Peter and John, you know, you've got uh, these guys that are following after Jesus who are known as zealots, which is an, a, a word that is attributed to people who are rebel rousers. Uh, zealots were known to carry uh, swords uh, with them all the time, and we know Peter did this, uh, because why? Extra wafer if you get this one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I, lunch, if you can tell me what the name of the servant of the high priest was. Oh, who said that? Oh, Kathy, you don't count. Uh, oh, man. All right, Kathy. Lunch it is. Whatever you want, whatever you want at Golden Corral, it's yours. So, uh, so that's right. Simon Peter in the garden, uh, when uh, Jesus uh, was praying his high priestly prayer, they come to arrest Jesus, and Simon Peter draws his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus, uh, the high priest. Uh, if you look at the Greek, it actually is clear that um, uh, Simon Peter, and just uh, through reason, uh, Simon Peter did not mean to chop off somebody's ear. If you're going on a full blow, how many op chances do you think you'd take before you got the ear? Uh, what was Peter aiming for? His head. He was, aim he had, uh, was intending to kill Malchus, uh, the the uh, priest, the high servant. And uh, so Simon Peter uh, was always ready to rumble, was always ready to make it happen and, and to make the stand. Uh, Simon Peter's ministry uh, was one of, uh, again, uh, acing the test and failing the class. Uh, that's just kind of how he operated. Uh, he was a fisherman by trade, and uh, it's very funny that of all people, Simon Peter, uh, Peter, uh, one of Jesus' uh, miracles that affected Peter directly, he healed his mother-in-law, uh, which is interesting. Uh, and so uh, uh, Peter's mother-in-law was healed. She lived right across from the synagogue in Capernaum. And you can go there today. We know where the synagogue is, and there's only one house across the road from it. And so we know that's where Peter lived. Uh, and so uh, you see Peter in his ministry, uh, a high point being uh, Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus has taken the disciples up to literally a den of idols. If you go to Caesarea Philippi today, it's very beautiful. It's up in the north of Israel, uh, right before you get to the heights, and it's the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's beautiful. It's lush. It doesn't look like the rest of Israel. And um, there's a cave which the water comes out of, and that's the start of the Jordan River. And in the uh, rock uh, face there next to the cave are all these niches that were carved to put idols in. And it's uh, in this place of pagan worship, and there are temples around it, where Jesus asks his disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? Uh, who do you say that I am? I mean, a very deliberate contrast there. And what does Simon Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon Bar-Jonah, I tell you that it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And then just a couple verses later, Jesus says that he has to be turned over to suffering and death uh, and that this is going to happen. And 
Peter says, no way, no way. And Jesus says what to him? Get behind me, Satan. And talk about from here, from the height of heights, being all the disciples, and of course a lot of the disciples didn't like Peter. It doesn't say that explicitly in the scripture, uh, but you know they didn't. I mean, he was just always, uh, and I mean, talk about impetuous. My favorite Peter story is, um, when Jesus reveals himself and they don't know what to do after his resurrection and they say, well, let's just go fishing. And so they go back to fishing and it was traditional to strip down in order to fish. And then when uh, they see this person over on the seashore speaking to them, uh, it's a replay of an earlier event in their lives and everyone recognizes it's the Lord. And what does Peter do? He puts his clothes on and then jumps in the water. What a doofus, right? I mean, you're already stripped down. Just jump in. The guys were rowing the boat back. You could get your your clothes back. But he decides to put his clothes on and then jump in the water. And so uh, Peter's heart uh, takes over uh, where the head never picks up. And uh, he's... uh, but he's great. He's right there all along. But of course, he has another huge fall when he denies Jesus. And he says, surely, Lord, I will go with you unto the death. And he says, Peter, even this night, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. And he doesn't deny uh, Jesus at the point of a sword or under persecution. Uh, but he denies Jesus to even a little girl. Uh, they recognize Peter based on his accent, and then they begin to recognize him based on his appearance. And he says, surely I, I don't even know this man. And, uh, and then, of course, the wonderful restoration of Peter uh, when Jesus asked him, uh, Peter, uh, do you love me? Uh, feed my sheep. And that's a whole other study for another time, what that actually is saying. Uh, and then, you know, Peter, who is so sheepish at this point and, and downcast, on the day of Pentecost, is filled with the Holy Spirit and preaches outside of himself. He preaches a message that there's no way in the world he could garner up the strength and the courage to preach such an incredible message if God had not intervened in his life. And so Peter's life, for me, is a wonderful testimony uh, that God will get a hold of you and, and will use you in spite of yourself. Uh, I've told the story before, but I think it's worth telling again that there is, um, uh, at the end of Peter's life, uh, when he went to Rome to minister, he was the bishop of Rome, and there was a great persecution that broke out under Nero. And uh, when that persecution was breaking out, uh, because Rome had had burned, uh, and they were blaming the Christians, the Jews, and the Christians specifically for it, Peter fled the city, and somewhere outside of the city walls, Peter heard the Lord speaking to him audibly, Peter, where are you going? And Peter realized, shoot, (laughs) Uh, here I go again. So even as an old man, and of course Peter went back and he would be crucified uh, upside down uh, in Rome uh, for his faith. So uh, Peter never got to this place in his life where people thought, I'd love to be Peter. Now, there are parts of Peter that people would say, I would love that. But the thing about Peter is that his issues are really hard to hide. You know, most of us, the things that we would say are deficiencies or our shortcomings, we do a pretty good job of either masking them or making up for them in other ways. 
And, and Peter, uh, the thing you can say about Peter is he follows Jesus' admonition uh, really well. Uh, he is not lukewarm, uh, but he is either hot or he is cold. Uh, and that's the way that it works. And even uh, in this ministry in the church, uh, Peter finds himself sometimes at odds with Paul. And he gets himself crossways with Paul in a way that we're about to see in Acts uh, chapter 10. But what we now begin to see is that Paul is beginning this ministry to Greek-speaking Jews, which is eventually going to turn into Gentiles. And for most Jews, this is a no-go area. And it's it's not... it may be for many or some uh, an issue of bigotry of their lesser people, but you have to understand that Gentiles were so different from Jews uh, that they would just look at one another like a dog looking at a clock. It just didn't make sense uh, the way that they, they lived and the way that they went about their daily lives. And of course you have uh, the dietary laws and things like that, but even beyond that, a lot of the, the, the laws in the Old Testament stood over and against what was going on around them uh, in the culture of the day. Everybody else looked at Israel and said, man, are y'all uptight uh, and, and just uh, and zealous for the law as most, uh, as most were in an effort to not just differentiate themselves from Gentiles, uh, but also as a reminder of the covenant uh, that they had uh, with God. And so this idea of taking the gospel uh, to Gentiles was nerve-wracking. I mean, one, it was trying to enter into a culture that you had spent your whole life trying to avoid, uh, so much so that uh, it, it, Jews very rarely left uh, Israel, uh, very rarely left their communities. And that's why even to this day, uh, and even in Jesus' day, you would see a lot of people coming back to live uh, in, in Israel. Uh, in light of what's happened uh, recently in Paris, uh, that uh, has added to the increased number of Jews who are coming from France to relocate back in Israel. And there was an interesting uh, little blurb about it uh, on NPR recently because they were talking about how that's all well and good, but a lot of the folks who have lived in Israel their whole lives are really dealing with the cultural implications of these Jews who are really French, culturally speaking, and they come and live in Israel for religious reasons and for safety reasons, which is kind of strange too. Uh, if Israel's the safest place you can go, Lord have mercy. Uh, but, uh, but in addition to that, uh, them bringing their French customs and, and social norms. And if there's ever a social or cultural outlier in the world, it's France, right? It's France. I love France. And uh, a lot of people have been talking recently about the Charlie Hebdo uh, cartoons and how outrageous they are and how people have a hard time believing that anybody could uh, could tolerate such, uh, not blasphemy, but just uh, the thing about Charlie Hebdo, and there are a couple publications like this in France, they're equal opportunity offenders, and so they go after everybody, but how any nation could tolerate that, I'm like, really? 
Well, any nation doesn't tolerate it. France does. I mean, in 1789, they made overstatement their MO, right? They, I mean, they sealed that up. And even before that, I mean, uh, look at uh, the, the grandioseness of the French royalty. Just go to Versailles uh, and see what Louis XIV had done there. And so in France, it's kind of uh, go big or go home. And, uh, and even before that, when you had multiple popes at one time, uh, where did the uh, pretender pope set up shop? Avignon, right, in France, uh, the south of France. Not a bad gig. So uh, there, I mean, that's just the way that France is. And so you have these Jews coming and bringing all of that cultural uh, influence into Israel. And Israel's like, I know that you're Jewish, but this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. And so, uh, and you see that uh, in, in Hasidic neighborhoods in New York City, especially over in Brooklyn, that when you have people who are devout Jews, what do they do? They create their own little ghettos, right? Their own little communities. And they do everything within that community, from education to uh, banking to whatever it might be. And uh, even uh, there was an interesting moment a couple years ago when the president of Israel, who's the head of state in Israel that we almost never hear about, he went to New Jersey and went to synagogue, uh, went to temple at a reformed synagogue, uh, which is the more liberal of, of the Judaism traditions in America. And uh, at the, toward the end of the service, they asked him uh, to say a couple words. And he got up and said, you are all idolatrous pagan worshipers uh, because of what he felt he had experienced in that service of worship. That he said, this is not Judaism. Um, you know, what do you do when you're the rabbi when that happens? Like, thank you for coming. Uh, 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 coffee will be served after. Uh, join us for the coffee hour. Uh, so uh, those who are incredibly devout seem to find themselves in these little isolated communities. And so this idea of, um, and, and think about this, I mean, then it was fairly, e it was somewhat easier to be a Jew in Israel. You don't have to deal with a lot of the, 2,000 years ago, you're not dealing with the cultural import of the internet or tourism or, uh, I mean, there weren't lots of people coming from South Korea to see the Holy Land in, you know, 33 AD. It just wasn't happening. Uh, now they're all over the place. But, uh, and you go over there now, and it's, it's tons of, uh, of tourism and things like that. But, so, it was more foreign to them then than it, it is even now. And even in traveling in Israel, there's a little piece of Israel right in the center, uh, which um, is still Samaria, and uh, that devout Jews would intentionally go around Samaria so as to not run into any Samaritans. I mean, that's, they would add a day or two to their trip just to make sure they didn't run into any Samaritans or that they might depend on any Samaritans uh, for hospitality. And yet, and yet, this is not something new. We see Jesus having a ministry to the Gentiles uh, in his earthly ministry. We see him having that ministry to the Samaritan woman at the well. Almost every other time we know Jesus and his disciples are going from the north of Israel to the south, they almost always go down the way, uh, down by the Jordan River through Jericho and then back up to Jerusalem. Uh, but in this instance, they cut through Samaria on their way back up to Galilee. And it's there that Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman uh, at the well, and she goes off and she becomes a little evangelist. Right? 
And, and this entire Samaritan community, uh, maybe not everybody, but a good portion of them, become believers and followers of Jesus Christ that day. Uh, Jesus, uh, when talking about dietary laws, and Jesus says it's not what goes into a man which defiles him, but that which comes out, the very next thing that happens is he's up in Tyre and Sidon, and he runs into the Syrophoenician woman. And that's a very difficult passage, which is for another time, but that's the one where she, she says she wants some food, and they keep saying, send her away, send her away, and then the dogs and the crumbs under the table interaction, and Jesus ministers to her. And so uh, there is not, um, there already is this idea of Jesus, of the, of the word going out, and indeed, Jesus' final words to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? All nations, uh, to the very ends of the earth, that you would take my gospel out there. And, you know, that sounds really great, uh, but the disciples didn't really understand the implications of that. And even with the power of the Holy Spirit, they're being made to feel very uncomfortable. Now, Paul's totally sold out, but let's see what happens with Peter in Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, now this is Caesarea Maritina. This is uh, not Caesarea Philippi. This is uh, further, farther on up the coast. It's uh, uh, very pretty. Uh, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of the Lord come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. So we've got a Gentile here, right? An Italian uh, living up in Caesarea, which is a big, busy seaport. That is actually the main port of entry uh, for all the Romans coming in by sea, uh, especially uh, soldiers. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, just kidding, and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. The word of the Lord. Right, well, you should, because we're all able to eat barbecue now. Uh, and um, because of this. Because of this. Now, this, uh, 
this more than perplexed Peter, this really must have disturbed him to no end because we're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of years of tradition concerning the dietary laws of the people of Israel completely and totally upended. Completely and totally upended. And so this is no small thing, which is why the Lord does it three times, in order to just make sure that Peter is understanding uh, what he's saying. Now before we get to the why, because this is... uh, This passage is used a lot to make excuse for a lot of things. Again, the Holy Spirit gets blamed for things the Holy Ghost would never do. Uh, And in this instant, the first thing to do, uh, one, let me just tell you, I'll I'll give you the answer, and then we'll get into why. God is telling Peter this in order to open up the door of a mission to the Gentiles, to you and me. That's why he's doing it. But now let's talk, let's do our our homework. What were the dietary laws for? What were the Jewish dietary laws for? Speak up. There are actually not really any wrong answers. Health, right? That's a good one. We've actually, the scriptures don't say. God never says, I want you to avoid this because of this. Right? He just says, here are the things that you are not to eat. Here are the things that you are not to eat. These things are okay, and these things are not okay. Uh, He actually does give a reason, uh, and that reason is so that you might know that you and I, the, the, the people of Israel and I, are in covenant with one another, and this is a reminder to you that we're in covenant, uh, and it's, it's a reminder to you of who you are, of who you are. But uh, there have been uh, lots of biblical reasons why uh, the, the law existed, things like uh, health and wellness. Um, a lot of people say, well, Moses was ahead of his time. Uh, he knew of all the health implications because of things like shellfish. Um, shellfish, uh, you know, for, for that, uh, that can be bad for you. And even pork, uh, trichinosis, uh, things like that. Um, and that may be true to an extent, Um, That may be true to an extent because a lot of the laws uh, were created for the preservation and perpetuation of the people of Israel. But from a practical viewpoint, uh, when it comes to something like pork, uh, you know, if you just cook it well, you don't have to worry about trichinosis, right? You don't have to worry about those things. And surely uh, the Israelites would have figured that out. Uh, And so although health and wellness may have played a part of it, it would have to be bigger than that because there are even some things on there that uh, really, on that list, that really wouldn't be necessarily bad for you. Camels, camels are on the list, uh, and yet um, uh, people of Arab, uh, the Arab people have been eating camels uh, for, for lots of years, and uh, they're edible. In fact, Australia has a camel problem. Uh, do you know about this? Australia, Australia has a camel problem, overpopulation of camels. And so Australia, the government, is trying very hard to market the deliciousness of camel burgers. <laughs> Ever heard of one? It's not working. Uh, and, uh, but an interesting fact, do you know who the Secretary of War was that tried to introduce camels uh, to the uh, U.S. Uh, cavalry in the West? Jefferson Davis. 
Jefferson Davis. So uh, that was not a good idea. Um, it, it didn't work. Uh, so anyway, uh, so w- but uh, praise God it didn't uh, because uh, we would all be eating camel burgers now. Uh, so there are lots of things on the list that are edible and fine and, and pose no health threat, uh, but that may have been part of it. Also, some people will say, well, those animals that you're talking about are just dirty. They're just unclean. So a lot of the birds that, that are listed are, are carnivores. And we know that that there are, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole idea in the Old Testament of not eating meat with blood in it, the, the needing to, to butcher it and to drain it and things like that before it can be eaten. Uh, and so, the, you know, that may be part of it, uh, but that doesn't exactly hold up uh, either and is a little bit uh, obscure. And then uh, there's an argument that's kind of interesting and, and, and kind of works, and that is that all those things listed are out of sync. They're, they're different. And so for like the things that live in the sea that are unclean, uh, they're like fish, but they're not like fish. Right? The things like um, uh, you know, oysters or something like that, you know, without scales, uh, that's the differentiation. And so this whole idea of, uh, of, of it being different uh, makes it unclean, uh, but it kind of falls apart when you start thinking about well, what's the difference between a pig and a sheep, right? I mean, sheep are dirty, right? And it, pigs are actually not as dirty as people think they are. Uh, I grew up in an area with a lot of hog farming, and um, it was not a pretty sight. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, in fact, I would say that the pig is a superior animal, certainly in intellect, uh, to a sheep. Uh, and yet, pigs—they're—they're uh, they're off. Uh, they're off uh, the list. And so if there's one argument, uh, and those things might all be possible, but the thing that probably holds the most water and that you see in the entirety of Scripture, and I've already mentioned a little bit, is that, I I don't want to say because God said so, but those dietary laws um, differentiated Israel from everybody else around the world and it reminded them that they were different. That they were different. And that these dietary laws, in a lot of ways, they were a sacrifice. Right? They were a sacrifice because no one else, I mean, you might be, let's just say that one day you're fighting the Assyrians and you're over there in Assyria and, um, and you smell bacon being cooked in the other camp. Uh, and you're just like, ugh, you know. Uh, it, it would be tough. Uh, and even today, uh, a lot of uh, devout Jews, uh, it's, uh, for them, I'm sure it's a joy to maintain the dietary laws, uh, but they do it out of a religious observance. It's, it's an act of uh, 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 devotion, uh, not uh, simply, well, I just want to uh, take care of myself. Uh, and indeed, uh, these dietary laws actually applied to the people of Israel, but not anybody who was coming into Israel. So there's a whole bunch of talk about these sojourners, these immigrants who would come into Israel. And if you're a Gentile, you are not to be subject to the dietary laws of the day. Right? And uh, that, um, uh, but because, all, you know, if you live with vegetarians, let's just, and that's a good example. If you're a vegetarian and you go over to somebody's house uh, and they're serving meat, um, that can be an awkward moment, right? Uh, that there's embarrassment, uh, and everybody looks at you, the vegetarian, as different. 
Uh, in Alabama, it's, it's really great because if, if you say you're a vegetarian, they'll say, oh, then I'll just serve chicken. Um, uh, and and, it, and it, it works. Um, uh, but if you're somebody that actually does have dietary restrictions, either because of allergies or by choice, um, uh, you are different, right? You, you, you are different. Uh, and uh, these dietary laws made them different. But when these sojourners would come through Israel or would move to Israel, uh, there was no, uh, they were not bound uh, by these uh, by these dietary laws, and yet they were bound by other laws. They were definitely bound by other laws in the Old Testament. And so uh, this vision that Peter is receiving is not abolishing the Old Testament law, but what it's saying now is that God's covenant is no longer restricted to a people, to a race, to a group, but his covenant is with everybody, and it's now marked by grace, not by observance. And so for Peter to hear this, um, even though it upends centuries, uh, millennia of tradition, um, this is God's way of saying that the gospel is going to go out to every nation, and I am their God and they are my people, regardless of whether they like barbecue or not. Right? Now, some Jews would in the church, and we'll see this later in Acts 15, uh, some Jews in the church would maintain those dietary laws out of uh, habit, probably one, uh, but two, the context in which they lived. Uh, certainly, if you moved uh, into a community, uh, let's say that you're a missionary and you move into a community that is vegetarian, some, uh, some people group that only eat vegetables and would be terribly offended if you ate meat. Well, if you show up at your first meal, you're like, hey, come over and have some chicken. Nobody's going to listen to a word you're saying. No one's going to listen to anything you're saying after that. They're just going to be offended. And so, uh, but then there are still those that the Bible calls Judaizers who are saying, no, 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 no. If you're a Christian, you have to observe the dietary laws. And you have to be circumcised. And God is saying, no. The dietary laws are abolished, and the new circumcision is baptism. The new circumcision is baptism. That's your entry, that's your entry point into the family of God. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's awful convenient uh, to place that right there in the book of Acts, uh, for God to do that. What about today? Does that mean that God has a habit of changing his mind and, and saying that once one thing was wrong and now it's okay? Does that happen now? Well, one, what I would say is this is a rarity. Does anyone know anywhere else in the New Testament where God has said, I know this was really important in the past, but now no longer is? That's because there isn't. Uh, so you got, everyone gets lunch. Uh, and uh, the other things, too, is that uh, what you see in the epistles especially are those things that God said no to uh, are reinforced. They're actually reinforced by the early church uh, and said, no, this, this still stands, especially uh, as the Articles of Religion put it, uh, as, as it stands to the law called moral, uh, how we are to live. Uh, but when it comes to those things that were particular uh, to the people of Israel to differentiate themselves, things like 
the prohibition against wearing certain like cotton poly garments, uh, the dietary laws, things like that have now been laid level, uh, not because God has changed his mind, uh, but because they have finally met their usefulness. Uh, now for the gospel to go out, those laws have been abolished uh, and the new covenant has been established in Jesus Christ uh, through grace and through faith. Now there are some uh, in the world today who believe in an idea of what's often called uh, progressive revelation. That is, is that God uh, is continually revealing himself uh, as time goes on. Now, uh, there, there's a problem with that, and the problem is, is that, uh, one, how are we to discern uh, who, well, one, who speaks for God, uh, and, and then two, uh, how are we to discern uh, the rightfulness of that? Now, there are some traditions in the world that do predi- uh, uh, who do teach a doctrine of progressive revelation. Uh, Mormonism, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, teaches that God's mind is unfolding and he reveals himself uh, to the apostles in the Church of Latter-day Saints. And so that's why uh, for years and years and years, if you were an African-American, you could not be ordained to the priesthood in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, um, that actually has bigger implications than you think because every man over a certain age is ordained a priest in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it was a very obvious exclusion. And then one day, in the late 1970s, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints put out a press release saying, God spoke to us, and now it's okay for African Americans to be uh, ordained into the priesthood uh, in our tradition and in our faith. What? Well, says who? Well, God, God spoke to me. Now, there is a difference between what's going on there and what's going on here. One, uh, it's not just God speaking to Peter, uh, but God speaking to the church. And so the rest of the church is affirming uh, what God is doing. And it just so happens that this vision uh, is within the canon of Scripture. Right? This is what the early church, through prayer and, and through God's guidance, said this is going to be part of, this is part and parcel of what we believe. Here are the books of the Bible. Here it is. This is reliable for faith, for doctrine. If you want to find out what your problem is and what the solution to your problem is, this is it. Right? Your problem is sin. The solution is Jesus Christ. And so everything from the Old Testament points to Jesus, and everything in the New Testament is about Jesus. And now, even though the scripture canon has been closed, everything that happens now points back to Jesus. Points back to Jesus. So if it's not pointing back to Jesus, if it's not pointing back uh, to the person and work of him, if it's not in, um, in harmony with, with that word, uh, then it's pretty safe to assume that that's not uh, a word uh, from the Lord. And certainly, certainly the church has gotten it wrong. The church has gotten it wrong through the years. But God in his mercy has righted us. God in his mercy has righted us. And so uh, during the Reformation, we had Martin Luther. And uh, a lot of times people will say, well, the church got it wrong about slavery. Well, let me say this. Uh, Be very careful how you say that. I think it would be right to say that many in the church got it wrong about slavery, uh, but the church as a whole uh, didn't deviate uh, from the Bible and did not waver uh, from the Bible. And indeed, uh, it was Christians 
uh, that brought an end to the slave trade, uh, especially, most especially, in the British Empire. Uh, and so um, uh, we like to point to outliers, uh, but a, a good definition of orthodoxy or testing is uh, that which has been believed uh, by all people at all times and in all places. Uh, in class, in seminary, every once in a while a guy would say, hey, I think I've got a new way to talk about the Trinity. And Alistair McGrath would say, before you say anything, let me just say that your idea is probably not a new one. And the last time it was articulated, it was in the 1300s and that person died at the stake. Uh, and he was right. And so uh, we're going to pick back up with some of this because this is a big issue. But I'm going to stop right now for questions, comments, and concerns. Matthew Delaney, doctor. Andrew, when Peter raised Tabitha from the dead, yeah. how rare was that? Were there other people that were making claims? Or, I mean, family went looking for him. So was this an unheard of event, or was there a lot of things? Right. Right. Was this an unusual event? Uh, a, good, a good question from an ER doctor. Um, yeah, so was it? Un yes, it was terribly unusual. Like it, it just didn't happen. I, I mean, it, you get these stories recorded in, in the Bible, so it seems like it happens a lot. But statistically taken as a whole, most people who died stayed dead uh, with, with, few, uh, with few exceptions. And so this is very unusual. And, uh, and it's not really about who the person is, uh, but it's almost always to validate the ministry and, and the person of Jesus Christ, right? So it's not, um, so yeah, it's really, really, and actually it's a very touching scene. I mean, they've got all this stuff pulled out that she made, and, and there she is dead, and they're all weeping, and she was such a, uh, the name Tabitha or Dorcas means uh, gazelle, uh, and so she was probably very pretty and, elegant uh, person and uh, and so but uh, why she was raised uh, uh, from the dead was to begin to inaugurate this ministry of Peter moving up the coast of, of Israel but yeah it it really doesn't happen I mean from here on out I'm trying to think of it happens again I don't think that it does so there you go Yes, doctor. Would you, would you repeat that statement about the authenticity of something depends on all people? Yeah, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I wouldn't say that it's it's. It, this is not a litmus test, but uh, uh, sort of you can uh, orthodox doctrine, um, and all I mean by that is right doctrine, believed by all people at all times and in all places. And so now that doesn't mean. Um, that it can be lost. I mean, f uh, there was a point in time before the Reformation where everybody believed really bad things, uh, but there was still a deposit of the faith and God was not finished with his church and brought them back to an understanding that had been held by the church for centuries before, before the Reformation. So that's why Cranmer and a lot of the Reformers, when they were talking about justification, they didn't just say, well, this is my opinion. They appealed to people like Justin Martyr and some of the early church fathers to say, and John Chrysostom to say, these are not new ideas. This is what the church has always believed, but somewhere along the way, we lost it. We lost it. Uh, and there are, of course, people that believed. In fact, there was a, an Eastern Rite 
uh, bishop at uh, the Council of Trent that was arguing for what is now known as the Protestant position of justification. Uh, and uh, he argued vigorously. Uh, and shortly after returning to his bishopric, he died mysteriously. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. Uh, all right. We'll pick it back up. Think about it this week because think about, I mean, honestly, bring up some hard questions. Think about, well, what about this? Like, what about this? Or, you know, may, why isn't, you know, did we lose something and now believe something that has been lost? So think about those types of things. In the meantime, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.